As I walked on through Chatham Street, a fair maid I did meet. She asked me to see her home, she looked in bleaker straight to me away. Sandy, my dear Annie, oh, you New York girls, can you dance the polka? The Long Haul Podcast, America's Irish Voice. Interviews with inspiring immigrants, renowned Irish personalities, and discussions on all things Irish America. Presented by Michael Dorgan and Johnny Kennedy. There's a couple of stories with him. I remember one time Ferguson came over and he called us all over and brought us over to the first team. Just to kind of talk us through why these players in the first team. And the first thing he said was, look at Roy Keane, never gives the ball away. Percentage player. And literally the first time Roy Keane got the ball, he gave it away. And everyone just started (laughs) laughing on this week's show, we speak to former Manchester United and Republic of Ireland youth player, Kevin Grogan. Kevin first went to Man United when he was 11 and signed a full-time contract with the club at age 15. He was part of a golden generation of young Irish footballers that won the Under-16 European Championships in 1998. Kevin was destined for a bright future at Man United, but was plagued by a pelvic injury, which ultimately cut his career short. Kevin tells us he was playing some of his best football at United when the treble winning team returned to training in the summer of 1999. But Kevin's injury flared up again and he was forced to leave United the following year. He underwent a number of surgeries and attempted comebacks with UCD, Millwall and St. Patrick's Athletic before calling time on his short career. Kevin talks to us about his time at United, his injury setbacks and the mental struggles of dealing with those disappointments. This is probably one of our most enjoyable and motivating episodes to date because Kevin didn't dwell on his misfortune. Instead, he carved out a very successful career for himself in coaching and in the business side of the game in New York. Kevin now runs his own private consultancy company called Kevin Grogan Soccer that works in sports technology and business development for a number of sports organizations and elite clinics in Japan. The company are also business consultants for Rezzle, a new virtual technology tool that helps players develop their game. You can find out more at Rezzle.com, that's R-E-Z-Z-I-L.com, or check Kevin's website, KevinGroganSoccer.com. Kevin's Instagram handle is at KevinGroganSoccer, and he also hosts his own soccer podcast called The Hairdryer Treatment, which is available on all major podcast platforms. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Long Haul Podcast, and feel free to leave us a comment or a review. There are lots of great stories in this episode and some good laughs. We even delve into some hair product placement with Johnny, and Kevin reveals he almost made a comeback as a kicker in the NFL. Kevin starts off the podcast by telling us about his time at United, starting at the tender age of 11. Um, grew up in Dublin, was playing for my local team, moved to the inner city to Belvedere, which would have been a big schoolboy club. And after a couple of months, got identified by Manchester United. Just went over on all my school holidays and trained from kind of 11 to 15 and then was legally allowed to go full time at 15. Yeah. And what was the what was it like there when you were when you when you first arrived? Did you have much uh, contact with the kind of senior setup or Alex Ferguson? Was he part of the the signing or when did you? Yeah, absolutely. First... I mean, the first time I ever went, I was eleven. We would train and trial and play in Littleton Road, which was a bit away from well, just down the road from the cliff where the first team was. Oh, but yeah. on the last day, that the Irish scout Joe Cork and he would have brought me to the training ground to kind of meet everyone, get autographs and. Uh, Sir Alex called me up to his office and said I did very well. So even at that age, he was very hands-on, really, really hands-on. Whoa. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's amazing, isn't it? 
he had this amazing knack of just remembering names, whether it was schoolboy players at 8, 9, 10, 11, whether it was parents, whether it was staff, groundsmen, um, you know, the tea ladies. He just knew everyone's name. And it was, a, it was a massive trait because it really made everyone feel part of it, you know? Yeah. He was no Bobby Robson, so... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> notorious for forgetting names. So, did you go there full time then when you were 15, Kev? Or- yeah, so legally you were allowed to sign when you're 16, but they found a loophole with the Irish transition year. So, I just done my junior cert. They basically said for fourth year I was over in work experience. So, they got me a year early because yeah. they obviously wanted their players as quick as possible in that kind of full time environment. Um, and then I kind of legally signed a year later when I was 16. So, yeah, 15 when I moved away. And back then it was, it was probably a big thing moving away from home. I mean, the world's a lot smaller now, but it was a big deal going over, I suppose, getting homesick and moving away from your family. But that's the sacrifice you have to make. And did you struggle with that or how did you adapt to that? Initially, no, but yeah, January, February was always a tough time because, we, you know, as youth players, you'd be late home for Christmas for two weeks and you kind of look yeah. forward to that. But then you're going back in January, the weather's bad, you know, you're missing the family. Christmas is a false time because you're having so much fun at home, but you probably don't realise at the time that everyone else is going back to work and school and January and February is just as miserable back back home. But that was probably the worst time. And in addition to that, it was just when you're injured and you're sitting on the treatment bed every day getting treatment. And that's where you just have too much time to think. If you're training every day, you're playing games at the weekend. If you're doing well, you know, you're buzzing and, and everything's fine. But when you're injured and sitting on the treatment, kind of bad every day and unfortunately I had a lot of injuries so you definitely get homesick through all that you know and so did you did that injury come on straight away or how long how long was it which or when did the first spark yeah I had early doors I had a lot of trouble with my knees and my hips which was Osgood Slatter's disease and then yeah. in the hips it's called Buckman's disease but that wasn't actually an issue in the sense of long term because that was just growing pains so they were very confident listen you're going to grow out of this so when it's sore don't play when it's not sore you're going to be able to play and eventually you'll grow out of that but it was a couple of years into it when I started getting real issues with my pelvis and eventually they found out there was bony erosion on the left side of my pelvis and I was probably 17 at that stage um, which was a big issue because with hips you can when you're older you can get a hip replacement but you can't really get a pelvis replacement so that was a big concern and there was a number of operations and then I kind of got to the stage when I was kind of probably 19 that a lot of injections just to kind of get through the pain to play, which I was more than happy to do. But I think that's when my parents kind of stepped in and said, listen, we, we've got to start looking at your long-term health here. It's okay to be able to play today, but if you keep getting injections, you're just masking the pain. And that's when it kind of around 19, we started to have a look at it and say like, maybe this isn't going to work out. And those years with United, did you play, did you play many games at under 16, 17 level? I know you won the, of course, the major accomplishment there was the under 16 title with Ireland and uh, Brian Kerr's team. So, but you were, you were injured. Yeah. So the first, over, the first year I went over, which would have been the kind of the transition year, I played every week for the U16s under 16s. Then the year after when I signed officially, I would have been on the youth team and then training with the reserves now and again as well. And once yeah. or twice training with first team players as well, which was amazing. So yeah, when you're fit, you're playing every week, you're pulling on the Jersey, whether it's with the, it used to be the structure was kind of U8s to U16s. Then when you went full-time, it went B-team, A-team, reserves, and first team. But there was no age restriction on the B and A-team. So, you know, you might have a player like Roy Keane once was coming back from a hernia operation and he played on the A-team just to get some minutes in. And that was great. But that was kind of coming to the end when I first started and it became uh, U-17, U-19, reserves, and first team. So there was age restrictions there, which I probably don't think was a good idea because it was great for us as youngsters when you had like a reserve player or even a first team player come down and play with us. So that was the structure of that, you know. 
what kind of years were they? Were they they were the late nineties, weren't they? Yeah, signed full time in ninety six. So um, would have been would have been there in ninety nine with the treble. That was probably my best year because I'd come off the back of an operation, and I was just getting fit around kind of February time, and I got back then fit to play for the youth team. We had a great run in the the academy cup, and we I think we beat. I think it was Everton in the quarters and we Blackburn in the semis and I was playing every week and the first team were doing really well and we were we were in uh, the old Wembley for the FA Cup final with uh, Newcastle. Uh, we were at the game at home against Tottenham when they won the league and then they flew us all out to uh, to watch the European uh, Cup final, the Champions League final um, in the new Camp. So between me doing well then and the first team doing well, I remember going back that summer thinking, right, this is it now you know, keep training over the summer, go back in pre-season and really try and kick on then and um, get into the reserve team and kind of build a career that way. And usually if you did well in the reserves, you get put out and loan by Alex Ferguson, which is always a good thing because you get that first team experience. Um, but unfortunately, when I went back in pre-season, I was probably six, eight weeks in and the injury started coming back. So was this just after they won the treble, the, the summer of 99, was it? Summer of 99, yeah. Okay. So I'd say the six months before that were probably my best six months there in terms of getting back from the injury, doing well, first team doing well, everyone was buzzing. Um, you know, so that was probably and then the, the year previous was with the European Championships with Ireland, with obviously Brian Kerr. We won we, we were in Scotland and we won it in May, and then the U eighteens won it in, I think it was June. So on my team would have been um, John O'Shea, Andy Reid, Lee Miller, unfortunately has passed away. Um, on the eighteens was Robbie Keane, Damien. Uh, Duff, Richard Dunn. So a lot of good. There was a good pipeline of players back then. Yeah, it was a real golden era. You were coming up, weren't you? A real golden era generation of Irish. There was some great players, and even the U twenties year before came third in the World Cup. It was some fantastic Richard Sadler and some fantastic player Trevor Malloy. There was a real pipeline, but it was all down to Brian Kerr and Noel O'Reilly. Noel sadly has passed away, but they, they were that was his sidekick, and Noel was did all the coaching, and Brian kind of the more motivation. Uh, side of things and recruitment but they were brilliant the two of them and they'd worked really hard Vincent Butler initially was a U15 manager he worked hard to recruit the players he passed them on to Brian and Noel at U16 and then Brian and Noel really nurtured the players from U16 all the way up to 21s and there were so many players that came through then and went on to become full internationals and professional players and a lot of it was really down to Brian and Noel and, and Vincent Butler and sadly Brian hasn't been involved in many many years but that's a lot of politics involved in that yeah, um, how, how how did your education fare then when you were over at United? Legally, we had to go to school once a week, so on a Thursday it was a bit of a token gesture, to be honest. You know, they just kind of all the academies did it. You went to school once a week. We did like a GNVQ, which was like a general national vocation qualification. It was, you know, it wasn't. It was pretty low level stuff. It was more just tick the boxes and kind of get the hours in. Now, Man United did give you opportunities if you wanted to go on and do your A-levels, which would be equivalent of a leave insert and so on. So if you really wanted to do something, they'd facilitate it. But, I mean, education is, education is so important, but the reality of it is you're there to be a footballer, you know, yeah. so you really need to focus on that. So it's a bit of a double-edged sword because it's hard when you don't make it and you might not have anything to fall back on from an education point of view. But I think if you're going to do it, you just have to go full tilt and, and go for it, you know. What was a what was a typical week there as a as a footballer at, at even at that age? How many times a day? How many times a week? Yeah, were you training. How many we'd games? Be, a week? Yeah, we'd be in. A, that was like it was old school enough back then. We all had our jobs, which I think was a good thing in terms of the youth players. So the first two years, you'd be cleaning the boots, you'd be um, washing the showers, pumping the balls, hoovering the staircases, and so on. So we'd get in early to all our jobs, train in the morning, uh, 
come back in, shower, uh, canteen for lunch, back out in the afternoon for more technical stuff, back in, do all our jobs. Then, you know, the famous coach, Eric Harrison, who was kind of behind the whole class in 92 coming through the system. And he was there, still there the first year I was there. He'd come down, make sure the jobs were done properly. If they weren't clean enough, we'd have to stay back for another couple of hours and make sure they were done. And now and again, the boss or Alex would come down and, you know, if if they weren't clean, he'd let you have it. Um, yeah, and you'd get back to your digs then about kind of four or five o'clock and, you know, have your dinner and, and rest up and, and do it again. That'd be Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, double sessions. Then you'd have Thursday would be your school day. And you do a, a light session on a Thursday afternoon. Friday would be kind of your speed agility and your five asides in the morning leading into your, your game on a Saturday and then a Sunday off. Okay. And did you, you said you had interactions with Alex Ferguson. Did you have much interactions with the, the senior players? Would they, would they come down to you? Or... Yeah, well, that was the good thing. Like, the, I don't, like people, the training ground now, Carrington, and all training grounds are amazing. They're state of the art. But like when I first signed, the Cliff training ground was like, if it didn't have Manchester United on the front gate, you wouldn't know it was a premiership training ground. But mm. You know, Ferguson loved it in the sense that all the great players came through there. George Best, Bobby Charlton, Dennis Law, they all played and trained in that same pitch. They all were in the same dressing rooms, <clears throat> same canteen. So it was very old school in that sense. But um, yeah, it was, it was an interesting time. Then they moved on to Carrington, obviously. And what they did was it was interesting. Every time they went to a European fixture... Uh, you know, the staff and the medical staff and everyone would look at the facilities all around Europe. Like they'd look at AC Milan's facility or Real Madrid's facility and they just plucked the best things from all the facilities. And that's what ended up creating Carrington, which was very impressive, you know. But in terms of interaction with the the first team players, the way that Cliff was set up was you'd literally have U team changing room, reserve training, changing room and first team changing room, literally on the same corridor. We'd all have in the canteen together we'd all use the same gym we'd all use the same treatment area so you're literally interacting with the players literally every single day which the first couple of weeks you're kind of in awe of them but after a while you know you just get used to it and I, I think that was good because I think it was good in terms of making that kind of family atmosphere and being around the first teamers um, a lot like you know and then obviously you know Sir Alex's office was upstairs and you could always knock on his door so it was very kind of close-knit a bit different now to in Carrington, the huge, uh, you know, facility is off to one side and the first team is on the other side and you have to earn the right to get over into that facility, which I understand. But back then, we were all kind of on top of each other. You've been to Carrington, so have you? Yeah, I've been there. That was kind of just coming in as I was leaving. It was just getting finished up. But I've been back a few times. But it's an amazing facility. The only thing Alex Ferguson says he regrets is the gym, where, you know, where the, the weights and everything is, that he has it on ground level with no windows. And he always wished he'd put it on second floor windows looking onto the pitch. So anyone that was injured would have that motivation of looking at the players training and it'd give them more motivation to get back. So I thought that was a bit of interesting kind of psychology and insight into his mind. But um, oh, it's fantastic. Amazing facility, bedrooms, you know, all the top of the range kind of recovery rooms, you name it. Like, you know. Uh, I think we might get into the, the differences between now and then in terms of coaching when we talk about your academy later. But um Talk us through then the um, when the injury started play, playing up and you went to Millwall and how did it kind of how did things kind of turn turn bad for you I suppose. Yeah, I left United. There was another operation on the table, but it was such a it was a crazy operation, and my parents were just like absolutely not. They know it was a specialist in Manchester. No disrespect to him, but he was trying something new. But it was an operation that had never been done. There was no you know proven track record of it. You know there was chances that. There was talk of kind of mashing my pelvis up and putting a steel plate in to stabilize it. But then 
there'd be issues with the movement because the pelvis is actually a joint and then you might have issues with your back and it was just like again I would have had it I would have jumped at it but my dad was just kind of looking at it and going like you're having a laugh here you know so I remember ringing Brian Kerr and you know there was suggestions we had kind of we'd gone to Dr. Pat O'Neill in Dublin the, the famous GAA uh, player for Dublin and, and he's a, he was a big specialist um, you know in the medical field and we'd gone to him kind of on the QT to get a second opinion uh, without telling Manchester United and he just looked at the x-ray and he said like he he's never seen anything close he saw one thing close to it once from like a 74 year old who had played sport all his life but he said it's you know for a 19 20 year old it's, it's it's not a good sign it's it's not looking good for you and, and you really need to start thinking about your long-term health but some doctors thought that if I trained and played at a lesser level for a couple of years, my body might develop a bit more because the issue was my muscles developed very quick, but my bones didn't grow as fast. So there was, you know, the glimmer of hope was, well, why don't I play at a lesser level for a few years, like part-time, try and develop a bit more naturally and then go back and give it another go. And that seemed like a bit of a comp- compromise between me and my parents rather than just saying that's the end of it. So Brian Kerr suggested I go to UCD, I could get a bit of an education, but I could also play League of Ireland because UCD had a, a team in League of Ireland, which you know was a good, very good level. So I trained with UCD and played for two years. Um, but in, in between that, in, after year one, kind of the injury was coming back. And I did have another operation, but wasn't as severe as the one Manchester United had kind of suggested. And then I rehabbed for that one and then eventually had the option to go back to England, maybe to Manchester United. But Millwall came in and it just seemed more logical to go to a smaller club. and try. I'd missed so much football at that stage. And Mark McGee was the manager. He actually used to play for Alex Ferguson in Aberdeen. And he was kind of saying, listen, if you come here and you play, you know, if you get into the first team, a couple of months, you know, he's good friends with Mick McCarthy. We can talk to him. Mick McCarthy was actually at the training ground a few times and had a chat with me. So I was kind of thinking, well, if I get into the first team here, you know, get into the Irish squad, I could get my career going, even though I'd missed so much. But um, yeah, it was a funny one because... I remember going, I went for two weeks training just to kind of prove my injury was gone. And I did brilliantly, really, really well. I felt great. And they offered me a really good contract, really, really good contract. And I was thinking, right, this is it now. This is my career starting. But the chairman was uh, Theo Fididis, who's on Dragon's Den. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Yeah. So he was actually away on holidays. And it was my first kind of real experience of like a proper businessman. And he came back and he was kind of, you know, by all accounts saying, well, who the hell is this guy that we're offering this contract to? And, you know, Mark McGee was saying, well, he was at Man United. And he was like, why isn't he still there? Like, what's the issue here? Like, if he's that good and kind of he was told about my injuries and he was having none of it. He was saying, listen, happy to sign him, but there's no way we're giving him that contract. So we had to, it was like winning the lotto and then losing the ticket, but we had to renegotiate, which he was right in the end. So we just kind of did a, a smaller contract with a clause in it after kind of 10 first team appearances they give me the original contract. But listen, eight weeks later, my career was over. So it was definitely a good business move on his behalf, you know. What is, is that you where you got the goal? Is that where you got the goal for your punto from, from him? Did yeah, he give you yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. The company <laughs> car. We'll get to that later, Johnny. What's that about? Unless he started early. I know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I thought that was the offer in there that he might he gave you some. But in fairness, Kev, like, it just shows you he ain't a businessman by accident, is he? No. The other guy, McGee, is the football man, and he just sees the player at the pitch. He's not even thinking of the other thing. The businessman was like, going, this ain't happening. Like, what a shrewd move by him. And no offense to you, but like, literally within eight weeks, he was proven right. Yeah, like, like we had no choice. Like, he played hardball. He was just like, listen, we want you, 
but like we're just not giving you this contract until you prove you're fit. And we feel yeah. 10 first team games, even coming on as a sub, you know. So he, he was right. And uh, um, it is what it is. But I, I, it, was, it wasn't really the money. I don't care about the money, but sure. it was more the fact I went back after everything I'd kind of been through. And I, I felt good. I had two weeks, I felt really good. Like even all the fitness stuff felt strong. Uh, injury wasn't there. You know, I was playing really well. Great team at the time, Timmy Cahill. Was in there. He just moved to uh, Everton a couple of weeks after that, or a couple of maybe a couple of months after that. Um, was it uh, Warner was in goals, former Liverpool goalkeeper? Um, Richard Sadlier was there. Um, you know, it was a good, good team. Like, and I was right in the mix, and I was doing well. And I, you know, I was meant to stay for four weeks, and they offered me the contract after two because I was doing well. So it was more the disappointment of just thinking right here we go this is it now and then you know six to eight weeks later it was actually my 21st birthday that i was told listen this just isn't going to happen you know so did you break down in a, in a match or or no it was just yeah it was just kind of it's i mean it's a funny one because you know i ha- like all athletes we have insurance you know we play premiums to have insurance to in case this happens you know so you get a payday in case you can't play anymore. But I couldn't actually claim my insurance, even though I paid all the premium because it was an overuse degenerate injury. And the clauses in all these contracts are, it has to be a specific time and place that it happens. So you nearly wish you got smashed by someone and broke your leg and could never play. But when we went, we took legal action and, you know, obviously cost money, but we went after the insurance company. We just couldn't win because there was no exact time or place. It was just an overuse. So it was over time. It got worse and worse and worse, you know. So, um, but it had got to the stage. I had got to the stage where I just couldn't function. I couldn't move. I couldn't twist and turn. You know, I would have been quite quick off the mark back then, but I was just so slow getting off the mark. And just that dull ache that got worse and worse and worse as games went on. So um, you just know, and at that level, you just have to be fit, or you can just you can't make it, you know. And was that separate from the knee issues you were having? The, those yeah, I th- I think the knee issues like uh, it's funny because every time I go home, someone says, "Ah, oh, it's sad to hear that you know about your knees," but it was actually never the knees that uh, I stopped yeah. playing. It was always the pelvis, but yeah, the knees and the hip stuff that was just growing pains. That wasn't an issue. So I think it was literally in layman's terms, it was just muscles develop really quick, bones didn't grow as fast whatever way I was made, my, my bones were soft. And I think the tendons in my groins were just causing friction against the pelvis. And maybe there was a bit of a, what they call an avulsion where your tendon rips off and takes some of the bone with it. And I, I think, you know, some people say, had I gone at 18, I would have been fine because my body would have been more developed. But I mean, you can't really look at it like that because if Man United come in to try and sign you at 15, you, you got to go because there's no guarantee they're coming, but they're probably not coming back at 18 for you, you know? Was there a, another operation after that then, or was that before where you had to do eight months rehab? Do you go to yeah? I was the I was the king of comebacks. I laugh at it now, but sure. <laughs> um, so I retired then officially on my twenty first birthday. Went home, you know, started working. Uh, started working with Pat Devlin and his agency company, Jackmar Sports. He would have had um, Damien Duff, and he would have helped Shay Given on the commercial side and so on. And, and Pat was great to me, to be fair. And I was working away with him, but. True that there was a lot of agents coming over to watch League of Ireland players and kind of my job was to bring them to the games and tell them which players might be good enough. And um, there was one particular agent and he just, I, I must have been, what was it, 24 maybe at the time. And he was going, you're, you're way too young to retire. There must be another option here. And he was Belgium, the Belgian. And he, um, 
there's a famous doctor over there called Gert de Klerk, it's a bit of a mad name, and he works with a um, rehab specialist called Lee Van Maskalk. And these guys have worked on like the best players in the world for years and years. And I'd heard of them. He says, listen, they're good friends of mine. Just go over and see them. Just see what they say. So I went over and visited them. And they said, listen, we think we might be able to get you back playing, but if we don't, we'll definitely be able to kind of tidy things up so it'll help you with kind of long-term health. And that was a bit of a mad one. That You could definitely argue that was desperation, you know, because I wasn't with a club. I had to fund the whole thing myself. You're talking about a big operation, nine months full-time living in Belgium, doing rehab. And I decided to do it. And it was a bit crazy looking back on it. It's funny because I thought, I kind of in my head said, well, listen, I've gone through the disappointment of not making it. If this doesn't work, I won't be disappointed because I already know I've kind of been through that and felt that. So I went over, had the operation, uh, spent nine months rehab every single day, um, really worked hard and came back and felt great again. I was in great shape. My body fat was down to like 5%. Um, I needed definitely needed some match fitness. So I signed for St. Pat's, who are one of the only full-time clubs in Ireland at the time. Uh, played with them for a couple of months and the plan was to play for two or three months, get match fit and then go back to England um, in the new year. I talked to Man United a bit and they were like, listen, we have Paul Ince, who's managing now, Roy Keane was managing, you know, so there was options for me to potentially go to some of these clubs and train and improve my fitness. And uh, same thing, you know, two and a half, three months into St. Pat's and injury comes back and, and that was the end of that. And my next comeback is next week. So. <laughs> I'll do one last one. <laughs> yeah, so that was that really, you know. You can't, um, it wasn't true lack of effort anyway. I've, I've read up, I woke to Kevin, everyone said that you're like, Obviously, with a tremendous talent, but um, and we don't have like the social media videos these days. But what type of an actual are you? I know you played midfield. How would you describe yourself as a player? Yeah, they, they I'm what they would call a percentage player. So I would never give the ball away. I wouldn't do anything flamboyant, but I'd keep the ball. So you know, I just keep it moving. Um, I'm not saying I'm Roy Keane because I definitely wasn't, but Roy Keane had other attributes as well. But he was a percent. You'd never see Roy Keane give the ball away yet. You wouldn't necessarily see him play forty-yard passes. Yeah. So I was, I was de- good on the ball, decent vision, uh, passer, link player, um, you know, and, and had a decent array of passes. So yeah, in, back in them days, it was if you're a midfielder, you have to be able to defend and attack. It wasn't you weren't one or the other. There was no kind of specialists as such. So you have to be a bit of an all-rounder. So yeah, midfielder, get on the ball and just keep things moving. So um, style-wise, obviously not as good, but like a you know, like a, a decent midfielder that likes to get on the ball, you know. Yeah, and you you scored a good couple of goals. I was looking on the on your record, like so you could you could nick a few at the same time. Yeah, if you, but if, as I said back then, you like there was no such thing really as defensive or attacking midfielder. So, yeah. Man United, you're playing four four two in the midfield. You're expected if if you're the player you're playing with in centre midfield isn't bombing forward, you have to bomb forward. So you'd be expected to get in the box and get your fair share. Like you'd be expected yeah. as a midfielder to get ten plus goals you know, yeah. a season, you know, especially back then in the youth team and reserves and so on. So, yeah, got a few goals. I mean, when I went back to UCD, I played more up front, which wasn't really my position, but probably suited me a bit better in, in League of Ireland. And I probably got a few more goals. But, yeah, just a, a decent player, technically sound. And I, I had a good attitude. So, uh, you know, I, I would have done OK because, I, you know, I had a good attitude. and was willing to work it. How big was your Roy Keane stories with um? Did you play reserves with Roy Keane once there, Kev? Yeah, said, regards, was... You talked about percentage there, keeping the ball. Wasn't there a scenario once where you were a couple of you were winning well and you didn't do play the right pass? 
there was a couple of stories with him. I remember one time Ferguson came over and we've all nice, we've all nice. <laughs> yeah, well, he's he, he stopped. I remember him stopping the, our training session one youth team and he called us all over and brought us over to the first team just to kind of talk us through why these players in the first team. And the first thing he said was, Look at Roy Keane, never gives the ball away, percentage player. And literally, the first time Roy Keane got the ball, he gave it away. And everyone just started <laughs> laughing. But he, but he was right. But um, I remember once I was on loan to UCD during that period, and I was the plan was to go back and train when I was able to. So I went back to train for a week, and just randomly, Roy Keane happened to be on the plane. He was obviously in Ireland for some reason. And I hadn't seen him in about a year. Obviously, young and shy, didn't know what he'd remember me. But to be fair, he touched me on the back and said, how are you keeping Kev? I hear you're doing really well with UCD. He waited for me on the other side of the plane, offered me a lift home. Then three days late, first day I trained with the youth, second day I was at reserves, third day I was with the first team. And um, yeah, he was there. I mean, at the start of training, you'd always do a bit of keep ball and we were doing one touch, so kind of like piggy in the middle style. Mm-hmm. And I just remember Nicky Bud absolutely pinging the ball at me. So it was impossible for me to control it. One touch bounced off me. I went to go into the middle to grab the, the pinny or the bib and Roy Keane stepped in and said to, to Nicky Butt, don't ever do that to him again. And then told me, do not take that bit, that pinny or bib as we'd call it over there. So yeah, it was nice to have something like that. Having your back. <laughs> but, but listen, I remember met him in the car park that day again. And again, Kev, you need a lift. And I was thinking, fine. I was actually going with John O'Shea, but yeah. So like my brief experiences with him were brilliant. Like, you know, and, People had this kind of perception of him, but like he was great fun around the trainer. Just standards, yes. Demanding, yes. But he was a good, he's a he's a decent guy, you know. Was Nicky Butt trying to do that to show you, like, you know, um, here you are now stepping up, I'm going to put him on the spot and an ambulance yeah. type ball. Typical. Taking, yeah, just taking the Nicky, really. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. You know, it, was, it was the start of training. It's more kind of for fun, but that's what they do. But um, there was no way, just like literally bounced off me and, Obviously, I didn't have the, the courage at the time to say it to him, so I went in. But, but listen, Roy Keane was good in that in that scenario. But he was great. He was good. He was good to me, and uh, yeah, maybe because it was the Irish thing. But um, he really impressed me on that trip, you know. So how big was the step up when you when you did go over to United from from what you were doing? But you were kind of used to it, I suppose, going over in the summers. Were you? But was it was it a major step up? Yeah, like I mean, the first day you go in training full time. Um, you're, you're obviously, I went a year early, so I was actually playing three years up. I was playing, there would be two groups, one year up and two years up. So, you know, I would have been by far the youngest. So, yeah, you're, these guys have, you know, yeah. youth players, they're used to training full time, you know, so there's the, the physicality aspect, the confidence aspect. It's a cutthroat world, particularly back then. Like, it was crazy. Like, like the one story I always tell is, like, from 11 to 15, I used to think Alex Ferguson was, like, the nicest person you'll ever meet, like, and he'd say hello when he'd seen you in the training ground and he'd ring your parents and he'd do all this. But I remember a couple of weeks into being full-time, we're actually in that full-time environment and I'm storming down the stairs, effing and blinding at someone. I was like an innocent 15-year-old, you know? I was like, oh my God, I, like, I'd never seen anything like it in my life. Like it was probably my, through my innocence. But um, yeah, it's a different world. You're in there, you're 15, but you're in there with grown men, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's you got to... Yeah, you got to grow up pretty fast. Like it's it's a strange experience, you know. Would if I had kids, would I want them to go through? Probably not. But mm. you know, I def- definitely learned a lot from it as well. Yeah. Tell me, Kev, with the inj- with that injury you have, uh, like fifteen years later, twenty years or fifteen years later, would there be any difference, any advancement in the scientific world, the medical world that oh, would fix that? Yeah. 
you could, I don't know if they'd fix it, but they would have got it before it got to the stage it got to. Definitely. Okay. Yeah, they would have seen that before it came. And I'm not blaming Manchester United for that, but it was just, you know, you're talking 95, 96, 97. It was only changing then. Nutrition was only coming into it. Even like core stability, you know, was only starting to come in and rehab and prehab and, uh, you know, warm downs and everything. Like that was only starting to come into it like late 90s. So um, the technology now is amazing. So I think they would have caught it early enough to prevent it getting to where it got to. But again, you can't really, you know, it is what it is. Yeah. So when obviously those setbacks, it was a major setback, the, the, like how did you cope with your career ending? And I suppose on several occasions that you came back as well, was it uh, mentally, like I could only imagine the disappointment? Yeah, when I first left United, it was Christmas time. I remember going home for Christmas and I was fine for a couple of weeks because it was Christmas time. And then the kind of new year came in and it was just grim. I didn't know what I was going to do. No education, you know, hadn't made really any money from it. I'm just trying to figure it all out. But thankfully, you know, Pat Devlin took me under his wing at that stage, you know, and I, I think like the Belgium thing, because although that was definitely out of desperation, I think when that finished and like it just, that was definitely it. And that's probably when it hit me the worst, even though I didn't think it would. <clears throat> but you lose, you just lose your identity and your self-esteem really, because you grow up all your life being the footballer in the neighborhood, you know, with the biggest, one of the biggest clubs in the world after you. All you know is football, you know, and then you come back and you're kind of sitting there in Ireland and you're saying, well, what else do I know? You know, I've no education. As I said, I didn't make big money from it because of my injuries. And you just lose your self-esteem and your direction. And although your parents have great parents, but, you know, they didn't really understand it because they'd never been through it, you know. And, you know, you might have your mom or dad or your dad saying, you know, go out and get a job. Like, but it's, it's not that easy from a mental standpoint. You know, you're, it's just you don't really know where to go with it. But, um, yeah, it's just a process to kind of get over when that did, and move on with your life. When did America come on the radar, Kev, from then? Like, what's the Yeah, what happened period? was, yeah, during that period, and I was back there and I was doing bits and pieces and I was just so unhappy with everything. And, uh, I just kind of said to myself, I need to go and have a challenge. Like I need something big, you know, when, when you're kind of, when you, when you're involved in a big club like Manchester United, like you obviously have some kind of ambition in you to do something um, and you have that kind of fire in you. So I needed something that could replicate that. And I didn't know what it could be, but it sounds cheesy, but I always wanted to come to America and kind of the bright lights and, you know, you grow watching all the movies and all and I had a friend who was over here and he was over here, I think, on a, a J1 or something. And I said, well, why don't I go over and visit him and just kind of suss it out? And the minute I got Cliff, yeah. And the minute I got here, I just kind of, you know, slowly but surely I started thinking, Geez, I, maybe this is for me. This is a challenge. You know, it's a big city and, you know, um, and slowly but surely I just kind of said, listen, I've got a four. I found it hard coming over in the first place because I wasn't really mentally in a great place. And even for the first year I was here, I was still a bit all over the place, but I just knew I had to do something. I just had to go and (laughs) we'll get to you in a minute. But, um, you know, I just knew I needed that challenge and and something big. And sure, there's not much bigger than, you know, coming to New York City, one of the best cities in the world and um, not really any money, no education, didn't know anyone. So that was the challenge. So thankfully I, I seen that as a challenge and I just came over and hustled and, you know, genuinely met some amazing people like Jonathan, Marker, Cahill, Vinny, and all these people that, you know, kind of took me under their wing and that. So that, that was kind of the start of it. But getting here was hard in terms of 
just plucking up the courage to do it. What age were you then, kid, when you first met, when you first came over? I think I was 26, 27, 27 maybe. Yeah. Which is a little older as well. Like I know Mike and you similar. Like, you know, when you were getting here, Kevin, you were obviously getting football. And I always give you great credit for this. And similar to what you're doing yourself, Michael, because it's very easy, lads, to easily just say, because you arrive over here and generally people say to you, well, what do you do? And the first thing you say, can you bartend? You know, or can you do construction? And in both your cases, that wasn't what you came here for. So I remember Kev like getting on buses, taking two and three buses out to the middle of Pennsylvania. With ten soccer balls on my back. <laughs> ten soccer balls and a lot of cones in the bag. Like Kev, is a, you could do a whole other podcast on horror cars and just <laughs> random breakdowns and everything. But like you stuck at it like amazing. Like it was very easy to bail it. Now it probably didn't help that the two jobs that I did mention, Kev probably wouldn't have been any good at either of them, the bartend and all the construction. <laughs> I thought it was when I first came over. <coughs> you, you, yeah, but you could have easily stuck at it and you would have been fine bartending. You could have done yeah. it. But you were doing this and making very little money, but you were making inroads the whole time, the contacts you made in these places. And also, Kev, you might hit on a little bit, not to be slagging anybody off or something, because I know the standard has raised, but we all know of the lad that came over in the J1 years ago. If you had an Irish accent or an English accent, yeah, you'd go train the kids. The Americans copped on to that eventually, and, and people realized that. Like, and you know, Stephen, in the early stage, I remember you telling me you were down in Princeton once te- training kids, and it was a little bit, you came back a little frustrated going, This is babysitting. Parents are paying top money here, thinking their kids have an in here to the MLS, the Premier League, and all this. And nobody was telling them any different, Kev. They were being led to believe, Yeah. Oh, yeah, you're in here training. Or even worse, again, Kev, probably shouldn't be naming names, but like some people thought because they were training within the Princeton grounds that it actually might help their kid get into Princeton. Yeah. And this in the middle of the summer. It's a money racket. I mean, just going back on, like I remember the early days said, like I'd be, you know, from walking from the apartment to the subway with soccer balls on my back, getting the subway into Port Authority, jumping on a bus two and a half hours, doing two training sessions, coming back you know, not having a clue about the kind of landscape of America and the kind of soccer culture. And I really didn't a laugh of it now, you know, but then I had, you know, all my good friends who were, you know, working in the bar industry, doing really well for themselves and a lot of respect for that industry. Like when you, when you, especially in New York, like this, Johnny would tell you like rock stars behind the bar, earning good money, working hard, like real credible job over here. And doing well for themselves. And there was times I think, what am I doing here? Like I'm traveling a round trip five hours down to Pennsylvania, like two times a week. And then I'm going, you know, all the way out the far end of Long Island on another day. And I just, you know, but I, I knew that's what I yeah. eventually wanted to do. And I knew that, you know, whatever education I had, it was in soccer. So, but as I started to figure out kind of the culture over here and how the lay the land is, I started figuring out, you know, how I could penetrate the market in my own way, in my own style and setting up my own academy and a supplemental academy. But Jonathan's right. I mean, it's it's a crazy industry. And, you know, you see the parents get so caught up in it and they just I know they love their children, but they get so unrealistic. And because of the pay to play model, they think they can nearly buy their kid an opportunity to play at a high level or play at a, a D1 a college and get a scholarship. It doesn't really work like that. So a big part of what I've ended up doing is, is parent education that my, my kind of company morphed into coach education and parent education and making sure the parents understood what it was all about that. Yes, you want your kid to play at a high level 
and do well, but there's a bigger picture there of making friends and having contacts and exercising and learning life lessons through a sport, which just happened to be soccer. And I think if we, and the culture of soccer, like, you know, you tell these parents, you can't just come and train with me on a Tuesday and a Thursday and play on a Saturday. They've got to touch the ball outside of that themselves. It's free. Just get a ball and kick it against the wall. That's where we all grew up on the streets playing soccer. You don't have to pay for everything. And then obviously, you know, what about watching soccer on TV or parents? Why don't you bring your kids to live games and, you know, create that culture where your kid loves the game? Because ultimately, if they don't love the game, they're never going to go anywhere in the game. So all this kind of nonsense of let's just keep throwing money at it. And, and Jonathan's right. You know, it doesn't happen anymore, thankfully, because the level of coaching has got very high over here. But, you know, you'd hear so many stories of the guy with the accent coming over and just winging it. And I was always very conscious of that. And that was a negative thing for me because some people said, well, okay, here he is with his accent. So I used to tell them, you know, before I even got on the pitch, before I even do a contract with anyone, I say, listen, bring me in. I won't charge you. Look and judge yourself if you think I'm a good coach. Let me talk to your parents. Let me talk to your coaches. Let me do a session and make your own decision. You know? Kev, can I just ask you? So get back to before when you came over, you did you did a course in UCD. Did you did sports? Did you do sports management in in UCD? And then before you came over here, did you have coaching badges or what was the goal when you came out? And what qualifications? Yeah, so I started my coaching badges in Manchester United, right, uh, the okay. FA Cert, and uh, did some FAI courses. It's all under the the umbrella of UEFA anyway, and kind of pursued that. And then um, did sports management in UCD um, different kind of modules in that, which was helpful kind of looking back on it. And I mean, it wasn't the most aggressive course in the world. It was one day a week and it was really set up for athletes like kind of myself or whoever. I think Brian O'Driscoll was in the course and it was really just a way of getting athletes into UCD to play the sport. Yeah. So it wasn't the most aggressive course in the world, but I definitely learned some things about it, but now I've kind of morphed more into the business side of things, which I, I, I'm really enjoying. But um, yeah, but I would have always pursued the coaching badges and things like that. So when you landed here initially, was the goal to go straight into coaching and that's what you wanted to do in America, set up your own coaching academy? Was that, was that the goal from the get-go? Yeah, the goal was to have my own kind of supplement academy. So what that means is, you know, you have travel clubs over here who train a couple of times a week and play in the weekends, they're clubs. Um, I never really had an ambition to have my own club, but what I wanted to be was neutral and a supplemental academy where kids would come to me for kind of so-called elite uh, finishing clinics or skills clinics or coach education or international trips and all that kind of stuff. Um, and that's kind of what I initially set up Kevin Rogan Soccer for. And um, yeah, I had a really good run out and it's kind of morphed now with more into the business side of things with a, uh, different things I'm involved in there, you know. So you've, you, have you kind of gone away from the coaching, essentially, is it? Yeah, I mean, the latter part of the youth stuff, I was more overseeing. I had a crew of coaches, and I was more implementing kind of my brand through them. So it was more coach education. And then I had a few stints as kind of uh, man, managing the New York Shamrocks and Lansdowne and so on, which I really enjoyed. But it, I always knew that really wasn't my long-term future. And I, I'd, I'd never had any ambition to go on and manage in the MLS or manage in England. And if I wanted to, I'd, I'd have to move back like ASAP and start climbing that ladder. I was always, to be honest, I didn't know at the time because soccer was my way in kind of being on the field and I'm a decent coach. Um, but I always just enjoyed the business aspect, to be honest. And that's kind of led me to where I am now and probably 
the biggest thing now is kind of Resil, which is a virtual reality training system. We're, we're in some of the top clubs in the world, Man United, Liverpool, Arsenal, PSG. We've just signed a deal with Oculus. So we're working really hard on that. So, yeah, I'd say definitely more on the business side now. Tell us more about that, Kevin. Yeah, it, it's it's amazing. It, it was founded in England. Uh, Andy Etch is one of the founders and Adam Garrett. And uh, they wrote this amazing software where you can actually put yourself virtually um, into a scenario where you can do a skills test. We had about 30 different skills. And with the help of Manchester United, we narrowed it down to the, what they perceived as the most beneficial five skills for players to go in. And there's different levels of each skill. And then at the end of it, you get like a Resil index scorecard. So you can benchmark yourself against any player in the world, regardless of the age. So that's one aspect. And then there's game analysis. So we can upload footage of any game and we can virtually put you in the body of any player. So a lot of the top, top clubs now are using that to analyze games, teams they're playing next week or evaluate how their players are doing. Or if you're a goalkeeper, let's put you back in your body from last week and see what you did right or you did wrong. So it's very high level stuff. Um, the Oculus stuff is a big contract for us, but that's more going to be a gamification version. Um, and there's other things we're looking at on, on, on that side of things. And we started with soccer because that's what we know. But we've had a lot of interest with basketball, American football, baseball. Right. We've talked to the Yankees. They're very keen to do game analysis with it. So there's, there's a lot of uh, opportunity. I think with tech, time is your enemy because you can't really patent the tech. We're way ahead of the game at the moment. So we're really running at the moment and, and we need to stay ahead of the game. But the challenge is to stay ahead of the game because there's always someone kind of behind you with something trying to be bigger or better. But uh, we've definitely set the table over the last year or two. And um, yeah, hopefully now it's going to be an exciting couple of years. And where can you find out more information about that? The, the website? Yeah, you can go on Razzle.com. Yeah, so okay. we actually, we've different streams. But we actually recently, just during the pandemic, when we couldn't do much, we actually looked into becoming an official franchise, which we've done now. So we're actually now franchising this out all over America because ultimately we can't service the whole of America on the youth side. So a lot of the youth clubs are taking us on from a Resil Index score uh, testing side of things. So now we're getting people where they buy a region and they it becomes their own business and it's a franchise model over here. So that's really what we're doing at the moment. So thankfully we have a lot of interest. So just when Johnny was saying there that you had to go to Pennsylvania, was that setting up the Kevin Grogan soccer that you had to make? That was down? all the early days. Yeah, that was kind of... So is that you know, getting out there, grind? meeting people, getting on the getting on the field, and just showing people like you know, talk is cheap, and I didn't want people giving me an opportunity because I played for Man United necessarily, or didn't I didn't mind that the door being open because of that, yeah. or because I had an accent. But I always found the best way to do it was just go out and do a few sessions for these clubs and just show them what you're all about, you know. Yeah. So you did the hard yards. That was the sure. grind, yeah. I, yeah. I thought he was. I thought he was sitting in Eighth Avenue in a bar. I never even believed he ever went to Pennsylvania. <laughs> You'd meet him a couple of times a week, and it was up in Pennsylvania. You're like, fucking, are yeah, you Amish? Yeah, I, I suppose a big part of you moving over here as well was that uh, you got the the O visa, didn't you? Back back in the day, and I suppose what my question is: the support structure for Man United, how were they after you left? And I suppose one of the biggest examples was that, was that uh, Sir Alex gave you a, a glowing reference for your your O visa. Yeah, I, I came over on a six month networking visa, and then figured out um, through Lorcan, I think you've had him on the show. He was very good right. to me that I'd be eligible for an O one uh, visa based on kind of what I'd achieved in my uh, soccer career. And yeah, thankfully, it was it was kind of reference-based. And I, I asked uh, Sir Alex, could he write me a reference? And he did. And 
that along with other references from people like Brian Kerr and, and so on was the reason I got my visa. So yeah, I, I, I spent, I think I've had four O one visas, you know, and just moved on to the green card recently. But um, yeah, I think that you'd definitely say that reference definitely helped, you know? Yeah. So he wrote some, some really nice lines, you know, just, you know, me as a person and my attitude and, you know, saying it was a really big disappointment when I got injured and had to stop for him and so on. So it was nice. It was bittersweet. Oh, bittersweet. Do you want me to read it out? <laughs> <laughs> you wish. Yeah. <laughs> it's on my T-shirt. Here. Yeah. Throw it in there. Were those clubs good to you when when you did get into when you when you left, Kevin? Was there much of a follow up structure to see how you're doing? Uh, I know that they've systems in place now for people who kind of you know. Do... Um, the honest answer is no, and I'm not throwing anyone under the bus by saying that. But it was just the time it was. It was, you know, if you went and asked for help, like I asked for yeah. that fees and got it. So I think it was more if you asked for help, you would get it. Very little, kind of. But you go back, sorry, Kevin, to that Christmas. And uh, you mentioned a couple of players there earlier on that played in them Brian Kerr team. I was remember as well publicised about Malloy and lads like that that went to Pats. You arrived back in Dublin for that Christmas. Granted, when jobs end, they end. But like, do you think there's a responsibility in some respects? I think they might have things in place now. Like, you went out there at 15 years of age, four, even from an early age, from 11, but signed out at 15. And then you're back in Dublin at, what, 19, 20 or 21 years of age, whatever it was, and you're in Dublin at Christmas. And there's nothing, there's not, like, thankfully you've good parents behind you, you come from a good home, but you were still left to your own devices. It oh, could have just, yeah, you're, like, you are a piece no, of how, how many lads end up turning around and going to America? But even at that, you did it all on your own back. I know you're not throwing any clubs under the buses, and how many players make it? How many, what is the plan? Like, do they follow up with everything? You could make the same argument with GEA players or county players and all, but like generally they go back to a club that takes care of them. Your club was Manchester United. You're back in Dublin again. And but for the lads patting them calling you, where do you I go? Like my biggest disappointment was probably the FAI. And I, look, yeah. I'm not ashamed to say that. I know a lot of great people in the FAI past and present, but you know, and they, they kind of had, something in place but they didn't really if I was being honest I think the advice I got was just that maybe it's time to get an education that was kind of it like I mean the issue the issue for me with kids coming back is just mental health that's there there should like maybe they have it now I don't think they do but you know you talk about agents and that world and there's so many kind of corrupt agents taking advantage of players why couldn't the FAI have someone who acts neutrally as an agent not to benefit financially because they get paid a salary from the FEI but they can take all the young players advise them on contracts advise them what clubs to go advise them give them the heads up about where they're going to stay you know help understand their personality and what can they do in case that day does come which it does come for most people where you, you don't make it be a support structure when you get off that plane and you're coming back can a person Hello. be in the airport to meet you like the, it's like you know, just it's small things, but it, it, there could be a lot. Again, I don't know what's getting done now, to be honest. But you know, I got off that plane and I was literally by myself, like you know. And there was a few people that might claim they tried to help me, but they didn't, you know. And you're kind of on your own there with it. And I understand people are busy doing their own things as well, but you know, but is the problem? Our- is the problem? Sorry, is the problem in a sense that the only holy grail that the young kids in Ireland see today is that they have to go to England. So, as you said, would you let your kid go? 
like Alex Ferguson used to famously say, the way through to getting a footballer was go through the mother. Yeah. Because a mother, a mother always can, has the concerns. Is that right? He says that, doesn't he? Well, the mom, the, the mom would have the genuine concerns of, you know, where's my son staying? You know, are you going to look after him? Where the dad sometimes will want to live his life through his kid. Life through. And he'll yeah. see more the glamour of it. So he first thing you, and he was right. He says, if you can win the mom over, you'll get the kid, you know? Um, yeah. Now, you know, in fairness to Man United, like I got the reference. Like, so, you know, I asked for that and I got it. And I'm sure if I needed anything else. But listen, it was a different time back then. I mean, people didn't talk about mental health. Like, it was such a taboo subject. Like, I, I remember being depressed, not even knowing what depression was. Like, looking back on it now, it was, I think, back, like, kind of horrified about the whole thing. But you just didn't know what it was. You're, my mom knew there was something wrong, but she didn't really know what it was. And it was just a bizarre time, especially being in Ireland. And no one, we're getting a bit better now, but no one really talked about mental health or depression. And, it, you know, I'm just so glad I got on that plane and came to America and got over here and tried to make something of my life and met some good people. As I said, the first year wasn't easy because I was still, you know, by myself and uh, just making friends and so on. But it, it was a scary time. But Jesus, there's so many players, you know, that went the wrong way after they came home and, you know, just so, so sad, you know. Oh, you see it with that team, like they came back, that Brian Kerr's team. I remember with Malloy and them, and I think there was one of the other kids that was ended up at Pat. And it's no, it's no secret, the guys ended up with drugs and then robberies yeah. and stuff like that. And these lads were like brought around on an open top bus only a couple of years before that. Yeah, yeah. You know, and to be, as you say, the FAI to see, like, because obviously I'm a golf fan, the golfers had a similar issue where the kids, similar to yourself and stuff, and lads, they, they didn't even know how to get to the airport. Their passport was brought to the airport for them, like mm-hmm. you guys, and you're planning a plane. Then when they tried to turn professional, overnight they were just on their own. So in a different way, they're putting a structure in place that they, the, uh, the, G, the Golfing Union of Ireland is helping them in the early transition, which they're doing that at the start, which is different. It's an individual sport. But it sounds like there should be some sort of a parachute for any of these. Like the amount of young kids that go to the UK, apart from the mental aspect of their homesickness and all that, yeah. like, like Paul McGrath, a prime example of homesickness and coming home and not wanting to stay with the team and go and stay in the hotel. And then even the other young kid, well, who was the kid from... I know I forget his name, Kevin, the, the guy who was the busker who died in Galway. Yeah, Doherty, was it? Doherty, like an amazing, yeah. anyone, anyone go Even read the that Gig said he was ahead of him at that stage, you know? They, they, but he did, they, they, just for people that listen, the little backstory on the guy was, he was an amazing footballer. I think he was from Derry or something. And he was just this amazing footballer. But football wasn't his first love. So he Playing actually did, was, he used to get the, two, the first team tickets, Kevin, you used to get first team tickets. As two when you were youth, yeah. two for every game. He used to sell his first team tickets and he'd go down to Manchester and he'd be busking on the street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and but he just didn't love the game. Ferguson offered him a five-year contract and he asked, Is there any chance I can get two? He didn't want it. <laughs> yeah. But he it also sad, got injured. Yeah, right. yeah, very sad. yeah he, he he also got injured, but his family felt that Manchester United didn't do the right thing across the board. And I think gigs and people have said something similar. Could we handle it different? There's yes. more to that, Johnny, I'd say. There's yeah. more to that story that hasn't come out of the woodwork and was kind of brushed under the carpet. But, yeah, you know, he ended up but passing it, away and it was very, very sad. Like you know. But he was a guy who arrived back in Ireland and his own family said they didn't know what to do with him. Mm-hmm. And like you just brushed over a little bit there, Kev. You were the man around the village. You were the man around Sutton. You're the man around, and this is the guy that's going to United and this. And now you're coming back and you, you're only a kid. So other kids are nearly looking, oh, well, listen, you give it a go. Sure, back yeah, then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No big deal. 
even that to deal with as a child, as a because you're a child. Well, I'll give you a great story. How, on that, how do you manage with that? The great story is, and I'd be embarrassed now telling this story because you look back at it, and but everything is relative, and you can only deal with what you're going through. But you know, there would have been a couple of people locally in our area who got uh, very bad rugby tackles and ended up in wheelchairs, which was just oh, awful. Wow. You know, um, and, and their story is amazing what they've achieved in life since then. But I remember my mom saying, "Well, look at you know such and such, and things could be worse." And I was only back about three weeks, and I remember losing yeah. my head with my mom because. Yeah, she was 100% right. And I look back on it now and I'm embarrassed that like, I didn't look at it like that. But you can only deal with what you're going through yourself. Yeah. And it I doesn't work that way, yeah. You know, yeah. You know so and she meant it in the right way and she was right. But it's, it's just hard. you just got to go through it yourself and deal with it. Everything's relative, I suppose. Um, but yeah, there's, there, there definitely was. I, I hope there's a better support structure now, but there definitely wasn't back then. And if you stayed in you- Dublin, where would you be? Sorry, Michael. Like what Dublin was never in the option, like for you, if you know what I mean, like work wise and everything. Like I still think as well, you're kind of just just the even foresight to come over to Cliff and just take a chance. Like I'm over here and everything. So you initially come over without the OBZ, you try to get the OBZ after the fact. Cliff came came over for he came over for 90 days or something like that. And I remember coming over for his first two, he knew some people here and I came over maybe a couple of weeks after him for two weeks. And we were in New York City and we went down to a, a college in uh, Pennsylvania with Skip Roderick was his name, a famous coach. And um, I met some of the college students and we went to one of the games and we went out and, um, you know, we did a bit in New York city. And I just remember going back and thinking, wow, like even the facilities and the colleges were like premiership facilities. I just couldn't believe it. Like, and the attitudes of some of these players, you know, and the effort they were, they were like professionals in college. I just thought that was amazing. And uh, where in Ireland college was all, mainly about going out and drinking and socializing and so on. Now, they did their fair share of that over here as well. But I was just amazed by that. And then I said, you know what, I'm going to go back for his last two weeks. And I came back for two weeks. And that's when I said, I have to try this. So um, figured out I could do a six-month networking visa. So I did that. And um, I remember coming over and saying, I was struggling a bit, like, you know, at the start. And I think, geez, what am I doing here? I don't know anyone. I've no work. You know, I've, you know, it didn't, as I said, didn't make money from playing. I'm all over the place here. But I remember saying, whatever happens, stay the six months. And if you don't like it, just go home. But don't leave before. This. That was my target. Don't leave before the six months. By the end of the six months, I started really liking it. I remember getting the 01 then, which was three years. And it was still, I was still trying to get some peers that were frustrating and, you know, trying to make ends meet and doing all that coaching kind of soccer balls everywhere. And I had the same mentality, just stay for the three years. Whatever happens, don't go home until this visa is up. And that was always my challenge, you know, to myself. And yeah, by the end of that first three years, then, you know, I started just loving New York City and slowly but surely things started taking off. What was the story, Kevin, tell Michael and the listeners there about the kicking coach for the NFL? Didn't someone yeah, say to you as regards that? <laughs> I never <laughs> even thought about that. That's, yeah. So Doug Blevins was his name. Amazing man. Amazing story. You should get him on the show if you ever get a chance. But um, now we're at the bottom co- of the barrel now. We're at the bottom of the barrel now. We're not going any lower. Well, than when, I got, when I got the text during the week, I said, geez, these when guys I, are desperate now. Like. When I start getting mates, I says, I know I'm in trouble. Like, I'm when you had Matt on, I knew it was, it was, yeah. I knew it was start going downhill. Right, to track him down Saturday night in Haswell Greens. Yeah. <laughs> that's what bad cotton. things are. That's my office. I'll Did you not know that? I'll have, I'll have Cottle on next week talking about the long haul, and I'll have Simon on the week out talking about painting. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, but yeah, Doug, Doug Blevins was an, an interesting one. So a, a former coach of mine was at the, some convention somewhere and he got talking to a famous uh, American football kicking coach, Doug Blevins. So um, Great said, name. I'm using that the name the next time I'm away with the lads. So Doug yeah. was like, you know what? I, I look at these soccer players. I know nothing about it, but their, their, their leg strength is phenomenal when they strike the ball. I'd love to train one and, and get him to some triads in the NFL. So the coach said, listen, you should contact Kevin Grogan. He had to retire from playing, but he can still kick the ball, you know, as long as he's not running around, jumping and doing all this. I get this random email from a Doug Blevins in Virginia. And it was around the time I was actually coming back the second time to see Cliff. And I said, geez, that's bizarre. That's, that's wacky. And I said, you know what, I'll do that, but I won't tell anyone. I'll go. He said, come down and do a few days training. Let's have a chat. See if you're any good. I'll get you into an NFL kicking. Now, I'm, I mean, my parents say this at the time. I remember looking at my dad sitting there and going, I can't tell him this. He will think, well, you played for Man United. Now you're going to America to play in the NFL. Like, like get, a, get a real job. There's time to yeah. show him the town here. Like. Well, so sure. I, never, I never told them, like, you know. But in my head, I was kind of thinking, Jesus, I'm going to be in the NFL. Like, <laughs> so, <laughs> so Posters in, down in the bedroom wall. Put up some <laughs> NFL posters. <laughs> I don't even, and I, I wasn't very tech savvy at the time, like, so I don't even think if I could do much Googling or anything, but um, I dug up a few articles, and this guy was the real deal, like, worked for Miami Dolphins and worked for all these top players. Brilliant. So I worked it all out. I said, I'd fly in to New York. I'd stay in New York for two nights with Cliff. Then I got on a plane down to, is it Charlotte Douglas? Um, it was Thanksgiving. I didn't even know Thanksgiving was a big thing over here. It was Thanksgiving Eve. I was in the airport trying to rent a car, and the guy's, guy was looking at me. Going, it was Thanksgiving Eve. Guy. I was like, yeah, I just need to get down to Virginia. I'm going to do a bit of kicking, you know? <laughs> but um, So I remember I couldn't get a car that night. And to be fair, I never forget the guy. And this is, this is, these are the little things that make you love America. I think the guy behind the desk felt a bit sorry for me. He's going, listen, I can't give you a car, but I can get you one tomorrow. I'll get you one tomorrow morning because it's Thanksgiving Day and there'll be no one around. So just come back. I said, brilliant. And he goes, but listen, like, if we're at a bit of a loose end, like, do you want to meet up later, like, you know, for a drink or something? <laughs> but I was thinking, you know, I didn't know anyone. So there I was. I, he Have you seen out. Deliverance? Have you seen yeah. Deliverance? No, he came out in Virginia. So the guy, behind the, budget, the guy behind the budget counter says, do you want to come and hang out with me and my girlfriend in the middle of Virginia on Thanksgiving? Yeah. I love it. So me, I met him. It was actually no, but it was in there. Uh, is is it? Oh, Charlotte. you're Charlotte. Yeah, you're so he Charlotte, went, yeah. went out with him, his girlfriend that night, and I was just thinking, wow, this is amazing. He's got these. These are so friendly. This is unbelievable. So anyway, got the car the next day, drove down to the hotel, and got in that night. And the plan was like to ring Doug to say that arrived, arrived. Said Douglas, I'm here. He was fine. I'll, I'll meet you at nine a.m. outside next morning. So next thing, come down the stairs and. He, there's this kind of like family wagon, like a, a family wagon, that's what you call them, yeah. And the electric door opens, you know. So I'm thinking, where's this guy? I thought he might get out and shake my hand, you know. I've never met him. So I get in. Doug turns around, shakes his hand. Turns out he's in a wheelchair. He's in one of them electric wheelchairs. So, no, not out of badness, but I'm thinking, sure it's this a kicking guy, coach. Who is this guy? A kicking coach. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so I go, this guy's one man to do, you know? Oh. So I said, so I said, you know what? Just roll with this. Just roll with it, Kev. Like, Let's roll. roll good with point. It. Yeah. Roll with it. Yeah, go. <laughs> so we drive down. Lo and behold, we get to like some uh, like track and field, and um, he has a couple of guys around him, and he he has an electric chair. Comes out the ramp, comes down. He would go onto the pitch and start chatting to him. Amazed, amazed. I think he had polio or something. 
I don't know what he had wrong, but amazing story. And he told me all the pe- how he always wanted to play, but he couldn't. And he just got so into the, the technical aspect of striking the ball, how you get power. And the, the amazing thing for me was, I remember he goes, right, warm up. So I did a warm up and he just puts the ball down. He goes, just kick it. Just kick it over them bars. And I kick it out of the bar. No problem. Do another one over the bars. And we go, good. And he's saying, listen, your leg is brilliant. Here's the difference. You're striking the ball where in American football, not even nothing about American football, he says, you need to get elevation as quick as possible because you have everyone charging at you. So he says, we have to, we don't want to lose your power, but we have to tweak your kind of technique here. And he was just telling me all the little, like little tiny things, move this foot here, this here, lean there. And it was just amazing. And uh, so I stayed with him for three days. He was married to um, an Argentinian woman who was a former... Um, Olympian, what's the sport where you go under the water and dance and do all that stuff? Just yeah. that covers a lot. Synchronized swimming, synchronized swimming. There you go. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. she was a former Olympian. So they did a pool session with me as well. And it, w- it was amazing. And he said, listen, like at the end of it, I'd, love, I to know where they, I'd love to know where they met. Go on anyway. <laughs> it, was just, it was just an amazing experience. And we, I remember, we, I mean, he, I remember him bringing me out the last night. It was so bizarre, but that's for a different day. But we, um, yeah, and I went back to New York then and hung out with Cliff for a couple of weeks. And I was just thinking, wow, what an amazing country this is. Now, he, no he phone got, call from, no call. No, no, he, he got in touch. It, it was a bit, you know what it was? He got in touch. He goes, Kev, listen, we want to take you on here. You know, they offer, it's a, I wouldn't say they offer a contract. It's a contract to say that you're going to train with him for six to 12 months. And at yeah, the yeah. end of that six to 12 months, he's going to get me trials in the NFL and he'll take a percentage of any contracts. Absolutely fine. I wasn't worried about the percentage bit, but I just felt at the time. I don't know. Maybe another good comeback. You yeah, I mean, I've done, done all this. And just to go back to my parents, say, listen, Jeez. you know, I'm sure, going to be in yeah. Virginia trying to be an NFL yeah. kicker. It's just, you know, and maybe it would have worked, maybe it wouldn't, but it was it was time to kind of get a real job as such and move on with my life. But yeah. amazing story, amazing man. I must I must reach out to him actually. Amazing guy. I wouldn't. I wouldn't bother. <laughs> I, I was, I'll just leave it at that. That's a great story. Kev, where's the soccer academy at now? Or have you just have you moved on for it from it or is it still operating? Yeah, so well, we took a big hit obviously with the pandemic and you know, you lose a lot of your best coaches, like anything. I'm sure people lose staff members. Jonathan, I'm sure you lost some great staff members and you're only as good as your staff in any of these industries. And some people went home, different countries they live. Some had to move on to different things. So, um, yeah, I, t- I haven't done anything with it since the pandemic. But, um, yeah, there's definitely opportunities now in the next month or two to get back into that. Um, thankfully, I have a good reputation and, and I'm looking at that aspect. But the business side has taken over so much that, you know, I'm kind of more heavily focused on that. And, I've always kind of done juggled five or six different things and okay. I've always wanted to maybe just for even one year, just focus on one thing and, and see where I get with it. And that's definitely wrestled the VR stuff at the moment. So, um, so we'll see where it goes, but it, it's there, you know, thankfully I built up good reputation and it's there if I want it. You know? So it was a, it's like a seamless transition. Like when the pandemic hit, you weren't, you, you had something set up that you could just, just go into the business side of things. That's fantastic. Yeah, well, I was always doing other things as well. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you lose in some areas, you gain in others. And, uh, yeah, you just get on with it. Like, we all, we all took a hit, but here we are kind of getting back going now. Like, you have involved a few clubs here as well, Kevin, weren't you, when you came out to uh, New York Shamrocks, a few Irish clubs? Yeah, Lansdowne was the first one. To be fair, Lansdowne gave my first job. Uh, I was only 27, and I managed their first team. We, we did really well, and I enjoyed it. And um, then I went, 
with uh, Oliver for Franicu to the uh, Jersey City Eagles, who were the MPSL, which was the next level. Enjoyed that. And then I, I stopped doing it because I knew it wasn't the career I wanted. And then I, I eventually went back into it with the Shamrocks, spent four years there, um, which was an amazing experience. Like, what an amazing club, like the longest running Irish club in America. Um, you know, had men's first team reserves, legends over 30s, women's first team, second team. You know, we played Manchester United Legends last year. Great club, but I did it for four years and uh, I loved every minute of it, but it was it was time to move on and, and focus on kind of my business. My business, you know, when you, you, you know, I'd be a very passionate soccer person and it doesn't matter if someone's paying you a dollar or, you know, a hundred thousand dollars, you give your best to whatever you're doing. And I, I, you know, really put blood, sweat and tears into that. And it was just time to, to focus more on my business, you know. And there are they based in Queens, Sunnyside, the Shamrocks. Yeah, yeah, Shamrocks are Sunnyside Queens. Yeah, yeah. And did you first move to Sunnyside when you came over here, and you stayed here since? Are you still? Yeah, I was Woodside initially, and then okay. then Sunnyside, and, and stayed here. And uh, yeah, thankfully made some great friends, you know. And of course, you you're met welcome. Johnny, unfortunately. You're welcome. Yeah. Well, I tell you a good story. Text me. That was another hit you took. Well, I met yeah. Cahill first. I won't say. Well, that was another Cahill. comeback. <laughs> but Cahill was uh, you know I met him randomly through someone and he was like you know I'm going out with all my mates for dinner on Saturday do you want to come I said absolutely and uh, I went out we went I think we went to Keen Steakhouse on someone's birthday a great night but lo and behold Johnny was moaning beforehand because it was four of them in the group before me and four was perfect for the taxi <laughs> now I hear it was a fifth and Johnny was going well how are we going to work the taxi here like so Johnny oh, tried to get me out. He tried to get it's me out before table. he even met me. Like, <laughs> it's everything. It was my brother's 30th birthday. It was Vincent's 30th. And randomly, as usual, Cottle brings a stray dog to the table. <laughs> and it's last, it's last minute when we arrived at the restaurant. I said to you, one table for four. And Cottle goes, no, it's five. And I said, well, how was it five? And he goes, oh, I'm bringing some, mate, some fucking mate of mine who got kicked out of Manchester United for selling gear. And it was like, like <clears throat> but it was like some random guy. But my argument at the time was, I said, I went on a rant with Cottle having the crack. I said, Cottle, you do this all the time. You bring someone along and everything's great. I said, but lo and behold, what's going to fucking happen? At 3.30 in the morning, I'll be the one stuck at the end of the bar in the mean fiddler. And this stray dog, he'll, this stray dog you'll bring along, well, I'll be stuck with him. And I said, and you'll know where to be seen. Kev comes along for the dinner. I don't remember any of it, to be honest with you. I don't remember Kev at the dinner. I don't remember the whole lot. But I remember 3.30 in the morning in the mean fiddler. And I just turn around and I look and there's Kevin. And he's looking at me goes. <clears throat> So where are you bartending yourself? Are you in any mores? And I remember just going, see, look, now I'm stuck with him. <laughs> look and at I've been stuck. Ten, year, I've been ten years him. later. And we just got our vaccines. I've been yeah. Vaccines, buddy. So. Buddy, so. <laughs> yeah, vaccine butters. Yeah. yeah. So now Kev's been a great addition to the uh, the five top table. But it is, it's admirable to see, like I said to you earlier, like I think, like if you read Kev's backstory and at the time, like I probably thought it was all lies, so I didn't really care any less. But when you see what he's done, and he's where he managed the club up north there a little bit and things, you know, just go the way they do. And then even for the pandemic to hit, like in Kevin's scenario, like contact kids, all that type of thing, social distancing, it'd be very easy to throw the towel at it. And as Kevin said, he looked at all of us bartending years ago and we were all making good money. We were at a steakhouse there for prayer. You know, you're throwing money around left, right, center. Kev could have easily gone into that. And he did, like he worked with us at Annie Moore's a few times, I think. Mickey and them were good to him in Bar 43. Macker and Pat, he has a couple of good stories working with Pat, Macker and Pat. Like, and typical of Michael and Patrick, they were like, listen to Kevin one day. Yeah, we get the football going. The lads get these great notions in that. Yeah, we're going to become this soccer bar and we're all up. 
And literally, one Saturday morning, they tell Kevin, yeah, you're on your own. You go in there, you work away. Kevin didn't even know his way around the bleeding bar. And the lads has just left him in there one Saturday morning. I think Penn State or something, was it? wasn't even a soccer <laughs> team, Kev, was it? Well, explain it to me as a, you're, you're going to be a celebrity bartender. So in my head, I'm going, oh, yeah. this is going to be great. A few photos here, like, then I'm in behind the bar by myself with like 100 Penn State people. They were American football, Penn State. Yeah. So Pat McNamee, Kev was all over the place. And Kev was ringing Pat and there's a panic going on. And Pat's and Michael's answer to everything would have been, which it is, it is the right thing to do. Just throw them a load of shots. So what did you give them, Kev? What did you throw up? How many well, shots? Vincent, your brother, had told me that they'd pre-made shots down in the rack. So I grabbed one of the pre-made shot bottles, which actually turned out to be lime cordial, and put up 60 shots of lime cordial. But they all loved it. <laughs> but I think what happened among them, I think Michael or Patrick might have texted one of the alumni people and told did, them the yeah. backstory. Yeah. So they all realized it was Kev's first day and he was on his own. And they actually, and again, back to Kevin's point, that's why you love America. They actually embraced it more and they loved them and they overtipped them and they did everything and everything. So, uh, yeah, you've done well, Kev. Lime cordial. Cordial. But, that's, like that's one cordial. Of the, but on that, that's <clears> one of the great things about New York City. I mean, we're in good circles. Like, you know, I got helped a lot when I came over. I try and help people now when they come over. And like, if all else fail tomorrow, we all know we have people we can call and contact and there's always going to be a job there for us somewhere or help somewhere. And, you know, it's important not to take that for granted because it's a real New York City thing. Like, and it's, it, it, it even blows my, my dad always says it blows him away when he comes over and sees it firsthand. And we're so lucky. Like we really are. Like if you, if you have that work ethic about you, you'll never struggle in this city. You'll never, ever struggle. So true. Where's the uh, state of the game here in uh, in America right now uh, in terms of MSL and in terms of the underage and the development? I just say I was out and we were out training last week, Randall's Island, as you know, like 80 pitches out there. And I hadn't played last year, but I played two years ago. And there used to be a lot of people out there. Last week, the place was thronged. Underage kids all playing soccer. Place mm-hmm. was packed. Soccer's, it's, it's. Well, soccer is massive here. Yeah, I mean, there's no issue of participation. I mean, it's the most played. Like, there's more people playing here in America than anywhere in the world, and you know, there's no doubt about that. And um, it's the good, the bad, and the ugly. But I, I like if we focus on the positives. I mean, look at the players they're producing. Like Germany is full of young American players. You know, and obviously Pulisic is in Chelsea now. Tyler Adams, Leipzig. He went from um, Red Bulls Academy over there. You look at Matt Miazga, he played for Red Bulls. He's now at Chelsea and since gone on loan. Um, you know, Matteo Rattacchio was a young kid playing in Queens and Gotchi. He signed for Liverpool. Uh, McGlynn, Jack McGlynn, Paul McGlynn's son. He Liverpool were very interested in him. He's gone to Philly Union now. The kid McKenzie. I mean, there's a lot of real talent coming through. So surely that's because something has gone right over the last 10 years in the development model. I think they've come on a long way. Um, and I think the future is good on the men's side. The women is, are so good. Now there, People always say to me, well, why are they so good? It, it's because they were way ahead of the game. Like America took women's soccer more seriously than anyone, way before anyone else. You do see England and Japan and Sweden catching a Spain, catching up on the women's side. But um, you can see the men's side getting better. Um, but there's lots of issues. It's hard to control. Like in in the defense of America, it's such a big country. How do you really control that kind of you know development model? And how do you streamline it? It's hard, and it's a pay to play model. And every 
organization is a private company. So, you know, there's business ahead of development. Usually most of the best players in the world, not all, but most of them come from the less affluent areas. And if you're in a less, if you're a less affluent kid here, how do you afford to sign for these clubs and academies? You're paying two, $3,000 a year, plus you're traveling three or four times a year to tournaments. Like all in all, you could be spending $10,000 a year just to play in a travel team. So there's lots of issues still, but there's definitely something happening because they're producing all these players. So I think it's in the best situation it's been in for a long, long time, but still a lot of issues as well. And that the biggest issue for me is that soccer parent. It's not even a soccer thing. It's just that sports parent mentality. Um, it's just crazy. It just it's it's not it's not a good scenario, you know. Trophy parents, like the people that are like the Earl Woods type mentality. Is that what you mean? Like the people that are like. Well, I always use. We've talked about this. I use the Tiger Woods <clears throat> yeah. thing as an example. Like, I mean, Tiger Woods' dad, to me, anyway, was a psychopath. But Tiger was a genius. So between the genius and the dad pushing him, he became what he became. But if you're a psychopath and your kid has no talent in the sport, all you're going to do is ruin that kid mentally. <clears throat> that kid is going to be burned out by the time they're 15. They're going to despise you. They're going to despise the sport. They're going to miss out all the real benefits of sport, which is meeting people, exercising, networking, and all the yeah. good things that comes yeah. along with sport. So that's the issue. It's the, it's the, they're not, uh, they're not realistic in terms of where their kids are at. I mean, Tiger Woods. Did you, is a, did you have a mother, Kevin, that sold our house and brought her kid to the UK? Yeah, I had a player and the, she was a single mom. She sold her house to bring the kid to the UK and Germany to, to train. And um, I sat down with them and just said, don't do it. Because what they were doing was they were, in essence, going to England. She, she thought she was going to Liverpool United, Chelsea. But what they were really doing was just going to the, the camps that they run. So all these clubs, yeah, all these clubs have their elite level where you only go if you're invited and you never pay for anything. Like when I went over from 11 to 15, I was flown over, put up like you're it's a trial. You're with the club. But these were all full profit camps. So anyone can sign up. And I was trying to explain to her that that's not a trial. And um, obviously, if you go and you're unbelievably good, you might get <clears> spotted. But it's not a trial. And her comeback was kind of like, how hard can it be? And it's just so sad. Like then. <laughs> You see that all over the place. And you even see, you even see parents. Like I know no people who'd be friends of mine that become parents and great people, but you know, if they stand long enough on a sideline, listen to the madness. Like if, if you're around it enough, you'll you'll come crazy yourself. It's just such a bizarre scenario. So I don't know. Great documentary. There's a great documentary called I think it's called Trophy Kids. Yeah, fantastic. And it, yeah. It, it's actually very hard to watch. I'd recommend yeah. anyone to watch it, but it's a tough watch. Like I think it's the, I think the guy who started the show or narrated the show was the quarterback maybe I noticed two shows but he was the quarterback for the Raiders and his dad used to stretch his legs as a kid That's he used awesome. to literally pull his leg because he wanted him to be taller to be a quarterback and the one that stood out for me was the father with the golf and the daughter Mr. Mr. Putt lads she was eight or nine years of age and the father set further down the tee box on the next hole and she was crying on the tee box because of how upset he got and he couldn't mm. talk to her and he said to her something along the lines of, well, I wouldn't be like this if you, if you didn't keep missing stupid putts. I genuinely couldn't watch the rest of it. I, I, don't, I, think, I never watched the whole thing. I think in most cases, if not all, the players in any sport that make it are the ones, they obviously have talent, but the ones that want to make it themselves. I mean, I've never never really met someone that, that at the highest level that had to be pushed every day to make it. They have that internal yeah. drive to make it. 
um, you know, it's okay. Your coach's job is to, and that's, being a good coach is knowing when to push someone and when not to push someone. But in general, the ones that make it in sport, they, they, they have that inner drive to make it. They're not, it's not someone else telling them to do it. I think it was the Nike and the Tiger Woods scenario that created this monster because they brought out that DV video around 99, 2000. And you literally had one, one of there was a, there was a tree box set. And one of them was actually Earl Woods talking about pushing Tiger to, mm. to breaking points. And he actually did push him to break. And like, literally he would even racially kind of abuse the kid and saying to him, this is the type of stuff you're going to have to put up with. But to your point, Kev, now there's parents looking at that going, yeah, but he has yeah. six green jackets and he's this not. He's one in him many lads. But a question millions. for you, Jonathan, would, would Tiger Woods have made it anyway without his dad doing that? I would say yes, because I'd say he, he probably had that inner drive and ability anyway. He would have made it at something. I don't yeah. know about the golf, but he definitely would have. But Tiger knows now, and Tiger lied to school teachers and stuff like that because he was so embarrassed. Like when they asked him about certain injuries, Tiger said, oh, I had that fallen off my bike. He never even had a bike. The father wouldn't. And one of the school teachers in the early days, and this is not hearsay, this is on recent documentaries and stuff from years ago, I remember reading up on. And teacher wanted Tiger to interact with the other kids. And the, the, the kid himself, Tiger asked himself about wanting to play football. And the father, Earl Woods, had never even gone to a teacher's meeting before. And then when he heard this, he went to the teacher's meeting and told him, my kid will not be playing any other sport other than mm. golf. So don't even be trying to sign him up to them things. But at what cost? Like Tiger well, Woods yeah. arguably could have been Michael Jackson up till recently, like hasn't just died. Like it's a similar, to me, they're, they're, they're not too I was just about unalike. to say that. I was just about his to turn, use Michael Jackson. Yeah, thing. his turnaround, in my opinion, is phenomenal. It's We'll never know, but I think he was that close to being probably on the front of the newspaper for being died or something he'd no childhood he'd zero childhood and when he eventually broke away and moved to florida or something when you think of what he did he never actually stayed that close with his dad then as much as they like tiger was his father's buried in an unmarked grave in kentucky so that'll tell you everything you know? mm. in the last 10 years kevin with the, the popularity of soccer here what's what, what has it driven that because there's so many competing sports here in america the, um, yeah. I think the, the concussion, sorry, stop you, Kev. Yeah, the concussion the is a big factor, isn't it? Yeah. Like, Kev, sorry, I'll, you can jump in, Kev, but you said there, Kev, earlier on, the reason the women's game was so far ahead, I think, because the girls didn't have many other options. Absolutely. Now, they did a survey there a couple of years ago, and most parents actually said now they wouldn't put their kids near American football. Like, the, again, back to the mother and father scenario, the mothers had said, no chance of my son going into it. And if you look, it's generally down around the Carolinas and places like that in California, where the big numbers are coming from in soccer. But it's mainly because they're not playing. There's no way they're playing American football. And that's where this divide is coming. Swing is coming well, there's from. No, there's, not as mu- there's no real barrier to entry for soccer. You need a soccer ball and a pair of cleats, like, you know, and off you go. Where you go to baseball, you need all the equipment. American football, all the equipment, plus the dangers of American football and so on. Um, so it's just an easy sport play. Plus the, the whole immigrant scene is like, look at all the immigrants coming over Italy, Ireland and so mm-hmm. on. They, you know, all over the place, they all grew up playing soccer. So as you see each generation now, soccer is coming more and more to the forefront, you know. Do you follow the, the MLS? Closely. Loosely, <clears throat> loosely. We were with into Miami last week doing a demo for Razzle. That's David Beckham's new franchise. So I'm interested in that one with Phil Neville, obviously class 92, the manager, 
uh, David Beckham, one of the owners and all. So that's, a, that's an interesting project, but I, I wouldn't follow it uh, religiously, no. Did you bump into Bex? No, he wasn't, down, he wasn't down there last week, but we're going back in June, so we'll see. You know? What do you think of the whole Inter-Miami concept? Making I think it's great, making... yeah. No, I think it's good. I'd be a big fan of David Beckham. I mean, fantastic player, great role model, never got himself in any trouble. Mm. Super pro, was as fit as anyone you'll ever see in your life. Like, uh, wasn't a party or wasn't a drinker. Real family man, you know, massively successful off the field business wise. I mean, he's he's definitely a real role model. You know? there's no doubt about that. Fantastic player, exactly. underrated player, underrated definitely. And what about the League of Ireland at home? Do you follow that, or have you any thoughts? Yeah, I follow that a bit. Yeah, like you know, I, I was involved there for a while, but um, it's interesting. It's hard. It's just so hard. With there's there's not really the fan base. You don't have the gate receipts. It doesn't generate enough money for the clubs. The sponsorship isn't great. You know, not enough people watch it on TV because people are, you know, more obsessed with the England Premier League or watching Gaelic or rugby. So it's been a bit of a vicious circle. But the standard over the last five years has gone through the roof. Like, it's phenomenal standard, like playing really quality football. And you can see that with a lot of players moving from League of Ireland to England. And there's an argument. Al Quinn talks about it a lot. Their argument, if you could get the League of Ireland... <clears throat> to a certain standard in terms of facilities. There's coaches there, there's good players there with facilities and that kind of thing. You could arguably keep the players there longer, you know, let them mature physically, let them mature mentally, and then send them to England when they're 18 or 19. The League of Ireland clubs get a transfer fee, which can get pushed back into the, into the game. And the player can go to England and be way more mature. You're way more ready at 18 or 19 to go and tackle that world than a 15-year-old. Um, but they need to have the right facilities and the right structure to keep that kid in Ireland and then create that pathway for which can be done. And I know Noel Quinn has talked a lot about that. Will we see the reforms in the FAI, do you think, to, for that to happen? Hopefully, yeah, hopefully. I mean, there's, there's some good people involved at the moment and uh, it's hard. A lot of damage was done. Um, you know, I was reading the John Delaney book, Champagne Football, recently. It's... Uh, it's just mad stuff. Like, but I mean, are, are we surprised? Probably not. Um, he probably did some good things as well, to be fair to him. But he did a lot of bad things. But um, there's a lot of damage. I don't know. If it was me, I'd probably fold it and set it up again and rebrand it as something else and and, and start again. Um, but from a, like a technical side of things, why Brian Kerr is not involved? And I'm not being biased because I know Brian, but I mean, how is he not in charge of? you know, the future development of Irish soccer, like in terms, especially on the youth side of things, it's bizarre. He's produced more players than anyone. Um, you know, he's so respected around the whole of Europe um, in all different circles of soccer. And, you know, just because him and John didn't get on, you know, when you hear stories about like, no one even knows what our trophies are from the U16s and 18s because they were never displayed in FEI headquarters. Like that's, you know, that's how deep the rivalry goes between Brian and John and, that's embarrassing. Like, what an yeah. achievement for his all to, yeah. to, to have achieved. And even he didn't want to do a reunion for you. He didn't want just to have no, any recognition. He wouldn't do it 20, 20, 20, 20, year, 20 years ago, I think two years ago. And he, he didn't do a reunion. Now, thankfully, the, the Soccer Writers Association did a, a presentation and we all went back. It's the first time. So he's getting together. Is there talking that he's getting together, Kev, maybe in playing over here or something? Yeah, or? there's talk of maybe uh, the U16s and 18s playing against each other over here, maybe uh, not this summer, the next summer, through the Shamrocks. But, you um, know, if you get, mm. you know, Andy Reid, John O'Shea, Robbie Keane, Damien Duff, Richard Dunn, fantastic game, you know, and uh, a banquet afterwards. And 
it, it could be really exciting, you know, for the Irish community. And, and it'd be from a personal point of view, I know this doesn't mean much to anyone this side, but just to, to get those 16s and 18s to get it more so the ones that didn't make it to say, you know what, let's go to New York. And, you know, people are proud of what you achieved and, you know, they come over here, you know, yourselves, they'll get treated really, really well. And obviously the big names will draw the crowd and the sponsors and all that. But for the ones that didn't quite make it, just to maybe it'd be nice to show them that they are appreciated for what they achieved. And is that in the early stages now, Kevin? Um... Very early stages. Um, yeah, very early stages. But I think uh, I think it could be definitely a runner. And I think we probably need a year lead time. So, you know, we've, we've got to probably pull the trigger in the next couple of months in terms of getting it going. But um, yeah, I mean, we've, we've done something similar. Shamrocks did something similar with the uh, United Legends and it'd be yeah. just a case of, you know, clamping a date down, booking the facility, working your way backwards from there, getting some sponsors on board, which I'm sure there'll be plenty. And um, yeah, I think it'd be, it could be a really, really nice uh, event, you know, for, for the Irish community. That was a Gaelic Park, was it, Kevin? That uh, was Gaelic Park, yeah. 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 They'll have a nice clubhouse built by then for you. Hopefully, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You said the classes the sit when they're sixteen and eighteen, Michael. Not when they're eighty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I knew Johnny would like that one. Oh, oh my god! Imagine back to trying the, to tax. Back to trying the, to tax people for fundraising. You must be on the board now, the GAA, Johnny. Are you? Are you back the to the long haul then. Oh. Yeah. Back to the long haul then. Yeah. The big news this week, obviously. Uh, by the time we get this, so you would know what would happen. But I know all the, the English, <laughs> the English clubs are after pulling out. Um, your thoughts on the the huge news about this uh, Super League that was proposed, and uh, it's after collapsing already. But what were your what were your whole thoughts about it? Yeah, I mean, bizarre, I suppose. But was it a real? Was it a negotiation tactic to get more money out of the Champions League? You know, sometimes in negotiations, you just do something absolutely outrageous and push the boat out to get a reaction, to get what you really want. Like, I'm not for it, but these guys behind this league are not stupid. They're very intelligent business people that have been very successful. Did they really think they could pull this off? I'm not convinced. I I think maybe it was a tactic to get UEFA to the table to get more of the rights to the money, the TV money and so on. Um. I think, um, yeah, it was it was sad as well, though. You know, you know, you have these big institutions. Gary Neville said it well, like Manchester United and Liverpool. I mean, for for you know American businessmen to be making decisions like this, um, now they, it is their club, so like it is a business, and they they have the right to try and do what they want. But I don't buy that they thought for one minute they could get away with this. And that leads me to believe that maybe they were just, it was a negotiation tactic and they'll get to the table now with UEFA. They'll get a bigger slice of the pie for the Champions League. And you've got to remember, like these clubs have lost a lot of money. And I know there is a lot of greed here. There definitely is. But like the big clubs make a lot of money, but they've lost a lot of money through the pandemic as well. And, you know, they these it's the, the issue is the salaries. The salaries are so massive. Like, how do you pay these players this money? It's just so hard. And, you know, there may be a bit of desperation from the bigger clubs to try and make sure, you know, they balance the books as well. But the concept of it was, wasn't wasn't good. It wasn't nice. It was, you know, wasn't thinking about the fans and the history of the game and the pyramid structure in England. Um, but, yeah, I think it was a negotiation tactic. That's my opinion. You know, they're owned by different, uh, different owners, but surely the, the top clubs in England, their reputations have taken a dent. Yeah, and I think they don't a, care, lads. They, they don't, don't care. care. Like, they don't care. There's no money. 
let's be honest, there's no money in the fans. The money's in streaming. The money's in the bigger games. Like Liverpool and Real Madrid played last week, two of the bigger powerhouses in the history of football. They played last week for the first time in how long? Mm. You know, but there is a structurally something wrong with the Champions League as well. And they have they have to hold their hand up as well. Like you're giving some countries five teams, you know, five and six teams getting into the Champions League and then you have these meaningless games. That's the way they look at it. Like it's the American mid-business model, as Kevin said. If you own the Yankees, you own the, the, the Dodgers or if you own the Giants or Jets, you're going to make money. European club owners lose money. And that's mm. not a business model that any owner wants to buy. And he's like, why would I buy it? Like Arsenal, they haven't made, they're not making, like they made, with their season ticket holder fans, they make money. But today, the season ticket holder, like I was talking to Stephen Doyle today, who was worked for Kevin a lot with the Shamrocks. And he even says, I remember when they were building Yankee Stadium and the Mets Stadium at 10 years ago or more, whenever that was. I think it was 09 when the Yankees said so, so 11 years ago. <clears throat> but they actually talked about building smaller stadiums because it's not really about how many fans you can get in anymore. That's it's not the where streaming. The money You're is. right. It is the streaming. Yeah. Just, like just to throw figures around, you know, like if you had a Super League and you have Manchester United be Real Madrid and globally 20 million people watch that at a dollar or one dollar sure. 99 cent like you're you're talking like 20 40 million dollars in one swoop like if from a business point of view i get it but um i just think there's too much history attached to these clubs. but them owners don't care they, they they're not losing sleep that the fans don't like them because they didn't get into it for the fans they got into it for totally. business their capital but isn't that you know, but do you know kev do you remember i don't know you were younger at the time when you were there but I remember when the Premier League changed over from Division 1, like, in 91, yeah, yeah. 89, yeah. 91. And everyone went on like the Premier League was the devil. Yeah, and that yeah, was nothing yeah. when you look at it. Yeah. It was all about us getting more football. And at the time, we were like, now we're getting a game on a Monday night. We're getting probably one on a Sunday, maybe two. The odd game, we didn't really get them on the Saturday. But this is just evolving in the same way. I do think it will happen in some shape or form. I do agree with yeah. you, Kev. That it was definitely done as a tactic, but it's their way of setting the ball rolling. Saying, well, I think what they want this to do is the way they, forward. Yeah, mm-hmm. they want more money from UEFA, and they want to restructure the Champions League. So the Champions yeah. League might morph into a Super League in some way. But I do agree, you have to earn the, your right to get into it, and you can't just get into it every year and be guaranteed. You know, that's that's but no see, fun. But but again, that goes back to the American system. There is no relegation. Yeah, yeah and nobody yeah. and nobody cares because nobody it's all cares. Money, yeah. Yeah, but nobody cares. But to your point, where it will suffer is especially in the UK because there's so many leagues all the way down. And the beauty of the prize, the, the richest game in football, the playoff game. And that is actually a great game to watch and to see yeah. that type of thing. But to the owners, they're like, yeah, great that you're enjoying it, mate, sitting in New York watching it. There ain't any money in it for us. And as you say, Kev, to your point, they're not in it for passion. They're in it for no. the dollar. And unfortunately, that's the reality. Like. It's a bit like me and Michael, this podcast. We're only in it for the money. <laughs> how much am I paying you to be on this? Do you want to mention that the, your podcast, Kevin? Do you, have you stopped doing that? Have you? <laughs> I, I've done I, the hairdryer treatment podcast, and the Americans always ask why it's called that. But Alec Ferguson, great was famous, he was famous for getting angry and shouting at some people, players, like it was a hairdryer in your face. So, um, yeah, no, we had a good runner. We still do a few shows now and again. Um, it's all based on the youth soccer market. So, we had some good listeners youth players, parents, and uh, yeah, no, it was good. And it was, you know, it was just a way to kind of inform and educate parents a bit more. Um, 
a lot of which are were already in my academy. So um, no, we we still do it now and again. But uh, yeah, it was it was fun doing it, and uh, we got good exposure. And if it helps the parents and the kids learn a bit more, then we're happy to do that. Okay. Just Perfect. want to talk about hair products, or anything? Just want to. What are you using, Kev? We'll, we'll take that offline, John. But, well, I will. My clicks on edit this out anyway. You look did you like mention, quite a bit did of Did you something. mention something? You're using something from Paris. It's a Paris brand, or yeah. And I had to leave a bottle of it in uh, Hilton Head over the weekend because I had carry-on <laughs> luggage. So I'm not cutting this at all. I'm not cutting this at all. I would not. So I had to throw a bottle of it out. So it's brutal. Like, throw me to get it for you and just can have a look at it. Yeah, hang on one sec. I'll grab a bottle of it there. Michael, it seems like you're the only one that actually knows what they're doing with the hair. I have my pandemic hair and I'm staying strong, you know? I like the hairband the other night, though. Did you have a hair, you had a hairband on the other night? No, I was, do you know what I was, Johnny would say? Did he have a hairband? Hair no, 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 hold on. <laughs> Pull back. Did he have the Ramos? No, worse. Did he do the Ramos? Was, yeah, yeah, that I thing. Was wearing, the... I was wearing sunglasses to hold it back, and it wasn't even sunny. Oh, so uh, what are you, Mazda house? What are you, Mazda <laughs> housewife? Oh, my God. Yeah, I, I do a bit of this, lads. I don't know if there's any recommendation for you. No, we're doing some yeah. product placement here. Totally. I gave Kev a bottle of it. No, no, I sent you a picture of it. It's on yeah, the way. Yeah. No, it's on the way. Yeah. See, the Ramos thing with the strap there is always a good look. You see, I wasn't risky enough to do it in New York last year, so I did it in Newport for the summer. Have a couple of good uh, drive-by bicycle rides, start with the hair blown back, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's a good look, Kev. I would definitely try yeah. it. Are you ever going to dye it, Kev? Would you just throw a bit of dye in there in the slide, would you? I'm no, getting no, a bit I'm of grey. I'm doing I well. Do with the, I'll, never, I'll never go grey and I'll never go bald. Well, I, the bald part, maybe. The grey part, I've met your father. You're definitely going grey, mate. Don't be yeah, fooling yeah, yourself. Yeah. Do the beard like Michael. Go cast I, I, well, I had a beard. I just shaved it off for the show. But anyway. You do you look know. like a bit baby face there. Yeah, you should do. You did a wet shave. I don't know if I did a wet shave anymore. No. Don't bother with that. Just Boys, that was voice. very enjoyable. Kev, thanks yeah. for doing that. Yeah, no, thanks a million for having me on. I hope I was... Appreciate your fantastic. You know? Very insightful, Excellent. Kev. Thank you very much. Thanks, guy. And that's all for this week. Let us know what you think by leaving us a comment on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Long Haul Podcast. You can check out all of our previous episodes on thelonghaulpodcast.com. For more information on Kevin's company, check out kevingrogansoccer.com or follow Kevin on Instagram at kevingrogansoccer. For more information on the virtual reality tool Rezzle, check out Rezzle.com. That's R-E-Z-Z-I-L.com. And Kevin's soccer podcast, The Hairdryer Treatment, is available on all major podcast streams. Please leave a review and subscribe to the podcast. This will ensure that we can get more episodes to you more often. And thanks for listening. Girls, can you dance the polka? And when we got inside the house, the drinks were passed around. The liquor was so awful strong, my head went round.